I hope you're sitting down because I'm about to share some pretty scary but important statistics with you. Since 2016, over 4,000 ransomware attacks are happening every single day in the U.S. And 71% of those attacks are actual infections. And this is just some of the terrifying proof that ransomware attacks are no joke. The nature of ransomware is evolving to a whole new level of viciousness that's impacting humanity as we know it. While the end game may seem like money, today it's become not only a digital threat to society, but a physical one too. Just two years ago, the Post Rock Water District saw a ransomware attack that shut down the cleaning procedures which kept the entire district's water drinkable. And earlier this year, Ireland's public health IT system was hit by a ransomware attack so massive that patients saw delays and cancellations to their healthcare appointments, and patient and staff information was leaked, including names and addresses, even medical records. And today, they continue to be severely affected by the cyber attack. We're facing an epidemic of ransomware. In fact, now it's an entire industry and service. So how the heck do we protect ourselves? To get to the bottom of it all, today I'm joined by Andrea Noblock. Andrea has over 10 years of experience in the cybersecurity and secure cloud adoption conversation. She's actually written an entire book about it, and today she's a member of the Cloud Security Alliance. So apparently my official nickname is the Valkyrie. Needless to say, she's an absolute powerhouse when it comes to getting some insight on the ransomware landscape and how we can all protect our organizations and society as we know it. And when it comes to getting real about it all, she's not holding anything back. So let's set the stage here. We now have huge networks of ransomware and ransomware as a service. So how did we get here? Absolutely. Um, If you look at the way the threat landscape has changed uh, over the last, especially during the pandemic, um, things have escalated quite a bit. When we look at traditional ways that uh, the bad guys went after organizations, it was very targeted. Um, They're very small scale. So they would kind of compromise organization by organization. And then as the pandemic hit and organizations kind of started working from home, we started to see that the bad guys realized, hey, there's going to be a lot of uh, security openings for them in terms of bad practices around using VPNs and just the day-to-day that, you know, we know our users sometimes will click on things they shouldn't or maybe not use that VPN. They take advantage of that. And what we saw was the evolution of a service model built around ransomware. So ransomware as a service, where on the dark web, you could, for the price of a Happy Meal, uh, you could order a ransomware attack and it would come with help desk support. And they would allow you to basically launch these attacks against any organization that you would like. On top of that, they saw because it was so successful, they started expanding these attacks and really weaponizing ransomware and going after things like critical infrastructure. So pipelines, we saw the hospitals get hit, which is literally starting to you know cause impact in terms of people losing lives. So we started to see that escalate to an extent that it became very hard to protect against that, which is why organizations are now in this very risky state of how do I protect myself against something that's been weaponized and basically built out on a scale that competes with the amount of people we have actually working in the security industry. Wow. The fact that these people are out there trying to find ways to make money and leverage the dark web and there's a help desk. Oh my gosh, that's a whole other thing. 
So when we think about security models, we know that most were broken during the pandemic. So that made it easier for ransomware attacks and things like that across industries. Can you paint me a picture of what this at-risk environment looks like? So one of the biggest things that we saw was a a change in the way that we operate our security models. And and that was a result of the whole movement to work from home in the remote workplace. Traditionally, security was always based on, hey, everyone's going to work in an office. I'm going to put security controls that keep everything in that office. And then now we're not working in that office anymore. So the traditional tools that we had all of a sudden weren't really effective. And the biggest thing that we noticed was when folks were not connecting back to those traditional network tools back in the office, we lost a lot of visibility. And the more visibility we lose, the bigger our risk becomes and the more chance we have for something to happen. And we've seen that during the pandemic. Uh, Specifically, when you look at some of the biggest breaches that happened, it took a long time to actually figure out what it was that happened because of those visibility gaps. And so even if we've got the right tools in place, if we don't have the visibility, we cannot ensure that we're properly protecting our infrastructure and our data. So we're hearing, Andrea, that ransomware attacks are nearly inevitable, and many organizations, their first thought is probably to buy cyber insurance. And you've mentioned to us that even something like going to those insurance companies or like working through your legal department could get risky because when we think about insurance, we think about compliance, all of those things. So maybe help us understand a little bit more about why there. And that's a great question. I think a lot of organizations think, you know what, I'll just get insurance so that if I do uh, get hit by ransomware, my insurance company will help with that ransomware payout. Well, unfortunately, what we saw is the bad guys saw that coming. So they actually started to wait for everyone to sign up with these with these big insurance companies. And then they hacked the insurance companies to get the customer lists so that they knew exactly what kind of coverage they had. So for example, an organization may have $10 million of coverage well, the bad guys are just then going to hit them with ransomware and they're going to ask for $15 million. So all of a sudden, their insurance becomes null and void. So they're constantly looking at that evolution of, of the game and, and seeing, well, what's the next step people will do in order to break that, that model? So there's no sense in us getting cybersecurity insurance is what I'm hearing because it's just going to drive in more attention to me as an organization. And then I'm now on another list that the dark web people are working on. And oh my gosh, this is like an endless circle. Exactly. Yeah. There's also a lot of conversation today around zero trust, and there's actually an interesting dynamic between zero trust and cloud. So can you help us understand and and talk a little bit more about that? One of the ways that as an industry, we're really trying to address these ongoing threats, specifically around weaponized ransomware and just the amount of volume we're seeing of these types of attacks. It's really how do we change um, the way we approach security to basically outsmart the bad guys. And one of the ways that we're really uh, focusing on on driving this across all of organizations all around the world is to adopt a framework we call zero trust. And it's really interesting to see how this kind of came out. If you look in the US, for example, President Joe Biden has released zero trust frameworks that he's actually leveraging through a brand new cybersecurity focused office within the government called the CISA. 
who's basically helping organizations all across uh, the U.S. adopt zero trust frameworks. And the idea with zero trust is we're going to assume everything is breached, everything is bad, and we're basically not going to trust anybody. We're not going to trust them unless we know their device is the way it should be, that they're using a corporate-owned device with the right security policies applied, and then we're going to very strictly limit what they can and cannot do. So it's a very big transformation that has to take place. And so cloud is part of that because for organizations, for example, that know that, hey, we're going to move everything to the cloud. We want to keep that remote workforce. We're able now to to leverage zero trust frameworks in cloud native environments. We can actually get it really not just compliant at a FedRAMP high level, but we can actually start to hide their data and their applications in the cloud because we can basically hide all, all the old legacy network, which means that the bad guys can't find them. They can't hit them with ransomware. So those are some of the sneaky ways that we are trying to address all these risks. So the idea of zero trust is that we truly don't trust anyone and then we work from there. Exactly. So as you just shared, it sounds as though the cloud is the ultimate protection when we think about ransomware. You know, there's this epidemic of rushed cloud migration, yet cloud is being a safer space. So can you help us just sort of understand some of the things that go wrong in that, like, we need to move, we need to move now, but what should we be considering? We're talking about two different architectures here. You know, going back to the original Castle and Moat, that's what we leverage kind of our networks for all the connectivity. And so we realized that to deal with the cloud, we can't just connect our network to the cloud because we're building all this risk. And we're also trying to match tools that don't really work. When you think about cloud, for example, a lot of those tools are either tools to harden configurations, so making sure that only certain people have access to things, but a lot of them are actually identity-based tools. So when you're connecting network security tools to identity tools, well, they have two different types of contexts. So that's where a lot of the risk is entering and it causing a lot of the blind spots. So when we shift everything to the cloud, we got to figure out, well, how do we replace that network? An advantage of replacing that network with a cloud-native framework is two things. If you look at the way ransomware spreads, it spreads on the network. It comes into the network, and it needs a network to spread. So if I take the network out of the equation, where's the ransomware going to spread to? It becomes very localized. So it's going to keep it from really migrating beyond the point of containment. The other advantage I get is... I can adopt now uh, things like Secure Access Service Edge or SASE, these new platforms which combine traditional network tools like SD-WAN and, and VPN and things like that in with security, and it's delivered as a service. So all of a sudden, I've got kind of a sneaky uh, zero trust exchange that I can connect into. Not only are my users not going to be connecting via a traditional network, so they don't have the same type of network risks introduced into my organization, but they're also going to do a lot of those traditional security tools um, or, or functions that I had in my network stack as a service. So if I've got a small IT team, they're going to do a lot of that patching and all that busy work that I normally would not be able to do. And also, because we're not pulling everyone back to the network in the office, it's actually faster. We can get a lot faster because we're connecting those users to the applications directly. So they're more secure, and they're actually operating at a faster level without the need to bring them all back to the office and introduce that network risk. It's great because what you're sharing is that we're we're adding in the layer of protection and security, but we're not impacting the productivity and the efficiency of our people because that's always been the rub is the more we put in there to protect our people, we slow things down or make it harder for them to do things. And it sounds as though this is the ultimate combination of, of speed and security. Absolutely. Because the, the way the traditional network works was I had of everything in line, like all the little appliance boxes, basically in a row. So when someone connected, they have to go through every single box independently. 
Well, now if it's in the cloud, it's one pass with all the security policies applied. So it's even faster. It's uh, less complex because I can start to consolidate a lot of those security tools because now some of that stuff won't apply anymore. I don't need to worry specifically about network risks if I have no network. This is a lot of information to sift through, let alone even process. But I'm curious if everyone really has a good understanding of the sheer scale of the ransomware landscape and the evilness of it all. So I asked some colleagues exactly that, cybersecurity experts and laymen alike. What do you actually know about ransomware? I know the basics about ransomware from the news, and it does totally freak me out. So don't know a whole lot of details about ransomware, of course, that it's attack and these cyber criminals are trying to hold data and information from, you know, organizations in return for some sort of financial payout. Uh, does it freak me out? Uh, a little bit, uh, but I'd say not too much because they go generally after bigger institutions that uh, have money in rather than me on a personal level. I hope I'm not naive, but I don't necessarily think it affects me personally because I'm just me. I'm not a big corporation. I don't have a large online presence or following, if you will. So in terms of drawing attention to myself for an attack like this, I don't think that it would necessarily, you know, apply to me. But when I read the news and read about what these people are able to do and lock down your laptop or your phone... In thinking about how much we rely on these, I can't go without my phone for an hour, it seems like, let alone, you know, days or weeks, if that's how long it takes to negotiate, you know, the return of, of access to your to your laptop or your personal property. Uh, it's out of my control. Uh, so since it's out of my control, uh, I don't really think about it too much. But if it is within my control for the little things that I do, like multi-factor authentication, then obviously I will uh, abide by that and just uh, just do that. Even though I don't think it necessarily affects me personally, if it did, I'd be lost. So So yeah, it does totally freak me out. So like you said, in order to stop the attack cycle, we should be taking that network out of the equation. So how do you educate organizations to do this? And like, what's their initial reaction? Yeah, so when it comes to zero trust, it really starts with an architecture conversation. Where do you want to be in three to five years? Is your organization going to be very cloud native with most of your workloads in the cloud? Or are you, for some reason, going to be keeping your data center and bringing everyone back to the office? There's definitely some industries where, you know, cloud may not be for them. So once you understand kind of which way you're going to go from there, implementing zero trust platforms. So, for example, leveraging SASE or Secure Access Service Edge, that will be dictated by which way you go. So we've got network SASE for those network type of environments. And we've got cloud native SASE for the cloud customer. So that's the starting point. And then from there, it's basically about how are we going to roll this out? How are we going to integrate with your current tools? What are some other tools that we need to integrate? How does that future state look like? What are some of the key business transformation things that that organization wants to do? And then how can we support that by building security in the front? Or as we joke, it's all about shifting left and building zero trust into everything we do. 
I like that. And what you're sharing as well means that regardless of the size of your organization, this can apply, right? This is, you know, small, mid-market, those small, you know, medium-sized businesses. This this applies to everyone. Absolutely. We're using reference architecture today that I, I've got small 50-seat uh, organizations using. That's the exact same architecture that, you know, some of the biggest enterprises are, are using right now. So for the first time, it's accessible because a lot of these tools are, you know, based on number of users. There's no appliances. So your capital costs start to go away and it becomes an operational model. So it makes it, again, easier to adopt these types of solutions. And because they're often delivered as services, you don't need the deep skill set that maybe we traditionally needed uh, to have within the security organizations. Fear drives a lot of this for for organizations, and it's what moves things around on the budget um, scale, you know, to say what makes it to the top and what sort of gets deprioritized. Let's face it, organizations don't just arrive with new buckets of money every year when it comes to budgeting, but it's a question of where do we take from? And I would imagine most boards of directors are asking these questions of executive teams in the larger organizations and other businesses, they need to really look and say, can we afford not to have a plan in place for this? Because, you know, you think of organizations that are dependent, if I think of things like retail and healthcare, they all have critical moments in their business. And if you can't respond and react in a way that is going to protect your business, then you're not in business. There is no business. When you talk about just the high level of attention in an organization that this requires and it's part of, I think about the people like the CISO or the you know CIO or the head of IT, VP technology, whatever the role is, depending on your size of organization, there is so much stress attached to this sort of thing. I would imagine that if they're not getting the buy-in or the ear of other senior leaders in the organization, this could prompt them to just say, you know what, if you're not going to take this seriously, like I'm going to go find somebody that does. And, and can you maybe help us understand that? Because I can only imagine what it would be like to be in charge of IT and to be trying to push an initiative like this forward only to have it fall on on deaf ears. We've seen it for a little while, you know, since the pandemic kind of started and obviously organizations were very worried about cash flow. We saw security aside from, you know, traditional things like virtual private network and, and kind of keep the lights on security. Everything else was pushed. And Again, they're pushing these things that need to be done, and we've got these ransomware problems. So it caused a lot of uh, animosity between within the silos of organizations. Um, so it's not uncommon, for example, for me to work with organizations where the silos are fighting with each other because one wants the cloud architecture, one wants to keep the network. We're also seeing huge skills gaps. So there's a lot of people who really know security from a networking perspective and the old traditional castle moat uh, security models. But cloud security is a very different skill set. And it's very hard to find those people. And those can hold up projects. So all of a sudden, you've got you know, the stakes are higher than ever. You've got a lot of stress building up, a lot of anxiety building up. It's causing also a lot of churn. So it's very common right now. I'm seeing with, with some of my, my bigger customers, people have been enrolled for six months or less. And then if they basically show up somewhere and they don't either get the budgets they need, there's no buy-in on terms of the strategy, or you know what? They just don't appreciate working with their teammates. They will leave. And we're seeing a huge churn right now in cybersecurity because there's not enough people. We've got over 3.5 million job openings. 
the money's really good in security. So we're seeing a lot of that turnover and it's basically disrupting any plans for these organizations to adopt zero trust because they don't have resources that are consistently able to help them do it. So given this whole conversation that we're having, like how scary is the reality of the ransomware landscape? Because would you say there's hope for organizations or is it like living in fear waiting? Like where does that sit? So it's definitely anxious times. Um, I think for the first time in the last 15, 20 years, security is now a board level conversation. They understand the actual risks that come from it, not just the downtime associated with ransomware. It's the brand damage. It's the legal fines. It's the not a, the ability to work with your customers anymore because you don't meet the security requirements in order to deal with the government. So it's how do we start to address all this? But a lot of organizations are siloed. So it's very hard to ensure that you get every key decision maker uh, across not just the security groups, but the CIOs and, and the people in charge of operations in the same room. And I think that's the hardest part. It's also an education problem. This is brand new types of, of, of security. So how do we enable that, uh, that education so that they understand, here's what we can really do with it. And once we start to show them here's what it looks like and here's the end result and hey you know let's talk to, to organizations who've already done this that hope is there that is really where the hope is because we actually see the risk drop 60 percent once we start implementing zero trust and from there it's just that fine tuning and we can really see the difference it makes and when i start to talk to customers after we started the implementations the look of relief on their face that oh my goodness you've actually for the first time in a long time, have helped me meaningfully with my security. To me, nothing gets better than that. Absolutely. And, I, and I'm thinking, first of all, you help those in IT sleep a lot sounder at night. Yep. <laughs> and, and I think what you're really spelling out is there's a cost of doing something, but in this case, the cost of not addressing this can be so severe. You talk about the brand, you talk about the organization. You know, when I think about healthcare, like organizations that can't afford to be down or not be able to function because it's it's crippling what you're sharing with us on some of these ransomware attacks. There's the cost of doing something and there's the cost of not. And I think the cost of doing something here far outweighs the cost of not. It's possible to come out of the ransomware epidemic unscathed. But the reality is that what we're up against is an entire ecosystem. And I get it. After nearly two years of a global pandemic, another massive threat to our world feels like a lot to cope with. But despite the scary statistics, there is hope. But I'm not going to sugarcoat things either, because that hope has got to come from a certain level of understanding and a place of caution. It has to come from a mindset that never settles and is always ready for change. Luckily for IT leaders and people across the tech industry, digital disruption is practically second nature. Hackers beware. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Catalyst. And if you did, please be sure to share it with a friend or colleague and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I can't wait for you to hear our next episode all about Connected North, a program that's totally innovating the education space for remote and Indigenous communities through technology. It's leading to lower dropout rates and engaged students who are connecting with each other, other Indigenous communities across Canada, and subject matter experts from around the world. 
I talk to Director of Innovation, Michael Furtick, about what this means for students, their communities, and reconciliation. The Catalyst by SoftChoice is a Pilgrim content production in collaboration with SoftChoice. Our producers are Tobin Dalrymple and Katie Lohr. Our associate producer is Jessica Schmidt, with production assistance from Nicole Francis. I'm Erica Van Noort. Talk to you again in two weeks. 